Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning to read at verse 1. I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you are already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super-apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Good morning, everyone. It's very good to see you. It is good to be gathered here as we are with God's word before us. Do keep it open. And I hope you also receive on the way in a little uh, handout, which will give you a summary of uh, the structure, what will be said in the next few moments. But uh, as we look at God's word together, let's, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have before us this morning glorious and weighty matters. We ask for your help. I pray you'd help me to preach faithfully and clearly. I pray for each one of us here this morning that as we look at your word, you'd help us to understand and believe what you've written for us. Father, we thank you that a day is coming when we stand face to face with Christ. Please help us this morning to be a people who are ready for that day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change issued a a major report explaining the concerns that we face as a globe in light of global warming. And uh, it's been clear over the last few weeks that there are many in this world who think that global warming is the, the greatest threat that we face at the moment as a human race. Then just yesterday in London, some six or 700,000 people marched through central London 
worried about Brexit and campaigning for a second referendum on whatever's being planned. And I guess for many, they would say that, that Brexit and the way it's unfolding is, is the greatest threat for the here and now that we, we face in this country. There'll be others, perhaps, who think of global terrorism. Maybe it's poverty. Maybe it's hatred as the greatest threat we face. Clearly, all these things are extraordinarily important issues. But this morning, we are looking at a different kind of threat. It is less obvious, less visible, less talked about compared to these other threats, and yet it is far more serious. In the final four chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to prepare the Corinthians for his next visit. And if you've been with us these last few weeks, you'll know that the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians has well, been a bit rocky at times. They've been thinking about walking away from him, and particularly because of other church leaders around in Corinth at that time, the so-called super apostles, who were very critical of Paul and were luring the Corinthians away. And as Paul plans to come to Corinth again, he wants to highlight the dangers of these super apostles so that when he arrives back to Corinth, there'll be a warm welcome, not a, a frosty one. And so Paul's purpose this morning in 2 Corinthians 11 is to expose something of the danger that these false super apostles pose to the Corinthians. And as he exposes the danger back then, so we are helped to understand the dangers that happen and exist today across the church from various church leaders. And we'll see that their teaching was not just a different angle on Jesus or on the gospel. It's a different Jesus, a different gospel. And their ministry is shaped and sponsored by the devil himself. The legacy of these super apostles is alive and well today in many churches. And for those of us who are Christians this morning, this chapter will be a a reminder, a a wake-up call even of the reality of the danger we are in as Christians. And if we are new to Christian things, then this chapter will help us to understand what the Bible says is one of the great threats that faces the world And so as we dive in, you'll see in the handout, our first point is this. A wedding is at stake. The Jesus that Paul has been preaching to the Corinthians that we've seen through two Corinthians sounds like foolishness to many people, particularly the super apostles. And so he says, verse one to the Corinthians, look, I know it sounds foolish to many, but but keep reading as you have been reading. Keep going to the end of the letter. Why? Well, verse two. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. There is a wedding in the diary. The groom is Christ, the bride is the church, including the dear Corinthians. Now is the engagement. The wedding will take place when Christ returns. And... What a day it will be. Back in chapter five of 2 Corinthians, Paul talked about how in the present he, he groans as he lives in this earthly tent. Uh, he, he's aware that it, to, to, to live now is, is to experience trouble and hassle in this broken world. And he longs for a better day where he goes to be with Christ. It's better by far. Paul knows that. And we can resonate with Paul's groaning, can't we? These things I mentioned about uh, climate change and political tensions and um, 
terrorism and hatred and poverty, these are things that do make us groan. It's right to groan in this broken world. It's right to long for something better. But Paul knows what is better. It is to be with Christ in that future day. We groan now, but a wedding is coming. A day when all is put right. It's been over seven years since Will married Kate. I guess many of us probably watched at least part of that day. You can picture the scenes, can't you, of uh, the thousands of people who, who watched. Um, after the, the wedding took place, um, when the couple went back to Buckingham Palace, there were hundreds of thousands of people who gathered outside Buckingham Palace to wish them well and support them. And then do you remember there was a balcony moment when Will and Kate, the new married couple, stepped out onto the balcony in front of these hundreds of thousands of people and there were cheers and screams of delight and people were clapping and waving banners and there's so much joy and goodwill towards the couple because it was a good thing that they got married. A moment of of sheer joy. But I know that as I talk about weddings here today, there'll be many people here for whom that is a painful topic. There'll be some here today who are not married and we desperately wish we were married. There will be others here today who are married, and we desperately wish that we were not. But the promise here in 2 Corinthians 11 is that for all those who are in Christ, a day is coming when we will have our balcony moment. We'll be stood there as the bride of Christ, and next to us will be our glorious groom, the one who loves us eternally, unconditionally, who's done everything needed to get us there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And before us will be the angels and the heavenly hosts who are undone with joy at what has happened, that the bride and the groom have been brought together on their wedding day. They will be cheering and joys and celebrations like have never been seen before. And when the cameras are gone, the smiles will stay because this wedding will be an eternal wedding of eternal bliss, of perfect love and complete security. And that is why Paul is so troubled. That is why he is jealous for the Corinthians because he knows that this future is on offer for those who trust in Christ. Uh, To run with the wedding theme, it's as if Paul is the father of the bride. Back in Paul's day, the father had a particular role to play in ensuring that his daughter remains pure and sincere until her wedding day. And Paul takes that kind of dynamic and he sees himself as the apostle Christ, a bit like the father of the bride. His role is to ensure the Corinthian church stays sincere and pure in her love for Christ until her wedding day. He wants to get them to her wedding day. But it's as if Paul one day wanders into a cafe and across the room he sees the Corinthians sat there having coffee and across the table from them is a is a person not there betrothed. And they're there laughing and chatting and and even flirting with the other man. And Paul is jealous with a godly jealousy. He's concerned for them lest they do not get to their wedding day. A wedding is at stake. I wonder if we have the view of the Christian life like this. Uh, For some, it's easy to think that uh, being a Christian is all about rules and routines and rituals. For others, we love the benefits, the forgiveness, the the new way of living, uh, the new community we are involved in. 
all good things, but what is better by far at the heart of the Christian message is our relationship with the Lord himself. And one day that relationship will be tangible in a way it is not on our wedding day. And as intimate and as loving and as meaningful as any earthly marriage can be, this one will be better by far and for eternity. With such a great offer, I hope we can see the stakes are high. And yet the Corinthians were in danger of ending the relationship. And we might wonder why would they walk away on such a good groom? And that takes us to our second point. A deception is taking place. Look at verse three. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may be somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The Bible is very clear that there is a real, personal, evil force at work in the world. He's called the devil. And the devil hates God and hates God's people. And he hates the thought of God dwelling with his people forever. And he will do all he can to spoil that relationship. He's very good at it. Remember back in the garden, for just a brief moment, there was that wonderful relationship between God and humanity. But the devil came in, the serpent, and through deception broke that relationship. And his great weapon is deception. He works in the areas of our minds, that's what Paul says, in what we think about God. And if he can warp our thinking about God, he can ruin our love for God. And he goes on working today, not through talking snakes, but look at verse four. For someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Paul is talking about the super apostles. Their ministry is a deception of the mind. They talk about Jesus, the spirit, the gospel, but it's a different Jesus. Lorna and I have been married for nine years, nine very happy years. I love being married to Lorna, and we were engaged for nine months. And again, it's a very happy engagement. I couldn't believe that she was going to marry me. I was so excited. But just imagine if, and this didn't happen, but just imagine if during those nine months of engagement, I became involved with another woman. And imagine if this came to light, and it would be horrific. Lorna would be right to have been devastated. But imagine if I said, in my defense, what's the big deal? This other woman, her name is the same. Her name is Lorna too. What's the big problem? Well, it'd be no defense at all because it could be the same name but two different people and the relationship is over. And here the, the Corinthians, they're engaged to Christ but they're flirting with someone else who's also called Jesus and they think it's fine. Same name, but different people. This is one of the big ways that Satan deceives people today. He floods the market with counterfeit Jesuses who sound in some ways similar, but they're different people, says Paul. Look at verse 13. Speaking about these super apostles, he says, 
For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. A masquerader is someone who wears a mask in order to, be, to pretend to be someone that they're not. And Satan doesn't present himself to the world wearing little red horns that we can all see who he is. No, he, he pretends to be an angel of light. Isn't that a chilling thought? That he looks like he's someone that we can trust and should follow. And so too those who are in his service, his workmen who follow his pattern and are motivated by his principles. They look like genuine workmen pretending to teach a genuine Jesus, but they are false. Uh, this week, I uh, had to go down to Sheffield train station quite late one night to pick someone up from the station, and I, I took the dog along for a little outing. It's about as good as her life gets at the moment. A little trip to the train station late at night, you know. And, um, as we were standing there waiting, a, a very friendly but, but very drunk man came up to us, clutching a pack of cheese and onion monster munch is. Um, anyway, crisps. And um, he had one in his hand, and he, he, said, he said, oh, can I give one to your dog? And I... I politely declined. He then embarked on, a, on an impassioned appeal for why it was so important that he gave this said crisp to the dog because he talked about how nutritious it was and how good it would be for her health and how he had seen the benefits in other dogs' lives over the years of this crisp. And he pleaded with me, please let me give her the crisp. And I politely declined. Now, you don't have to be a brilliant vet to be a little bit concerned about the health benefits of a greasy, um, spicy onion snack for a dog. And may I say, the, the arguments that are employed by a friendly yet very drunk man late at night in an empty train station are often not persuasive. And so it wasn't hard to say, I'm okay, thanks. And um, sure enough, I went back home and checked, and onions are mildly poisonous for dogs. Just a little health tip for you dog owners out there, free. Um, now look, I wonder if many of us think that if we were to meet a false teacher, that they would come at us a bit like that friendly but very drunk man in the train station. The arguments that they put forward to us would be almost laughable. We could see through them. We would be unpersuaded. The, the offer would be obviously unhealthy, perhaps even poisonous to us. And so it would be easy for us to politely decline their offer. And that is exactly Paul's point. It won't be like that. They'll come to us with powerful, plausible, reasonable, logical explanations of their Jesus. And the offer they give us will sound good and right and wholesome. And we'll be deceived. Notice what Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 4 about these false Jesuses. He says, you put up with them easily enough. Now look. Let's not be proud here and look down at the Corinthians as if they were a bunch of gullible Christians. We would be the same as them because these super apostles were deceiving them with a talk of Jesus and the spirit and the gospel. It sounded so plausible and yet it's a different Jesus. Paul doesn't say what was being preached by these super apostles but we can make a good guess based on the context we know that Paul was being criticized for preaching a Jesus who called for repentance. 
So you can imagine how it might have gone with the super apostles critiquing Paul. Come on, Paul. God is love. Jesus loves everyone. He's come to accept everyone. Come on, Paul. You're being so dismissive of people. You're saying that our mistakes in the past will cut us off from God. You're saying that we need to change and repent. Come on, Paul. God loves everyone just as they are. Don't push people away. Don't talk about the need to change. Just take them as they are. That's what God would do. God loves. Paul, did God really say that our sin is that serious? Did God really say that even in the area of our sexual behavior, that those kinds of things are enough to exclude us from the kingdom of God? Come on, Paul, God is love. So the super apostles would say. Sadly, there are many pulpits up and down the country that preach just that kind of Jesus, and many people are being deceived. Or there is the therapeutic Jesus who exists to make our dreams come true. So whatever we long for or want in life, his job is to make that happen as easily and as quickly as possible. We know that the super apostles were preaching a kind of Jesus who would bring us health and wealth and happiness now, glory now, the good life now. Jesus Paul preached was a Jesus who first suffered, a savior who was mocked and beaten, who was made poor before the glory. And the same pattern is true for all those who follow Jesus. And when people believe a a therapeutic Jesus, who they think will make their lives exactly how they want now, when something happens in their lives which doesn't fit what they want, and they pray about it and nothing happens, as they want, so often their faith is left in tatters. I've seen it happen again and again. And sadly, there are many pulpits in this country preaching that kind of Jesus. And so whether it is a repentance-less Jesus or a therapeutic Jesus or or any other Jesus, a deception is well underway in this world sponsored by the devil himself. For some of us here this morning, the warning is clear. Don't be too quick to believe everything a Christian leader says. Just because they mention Jesus and talk about the spirit and the gospel doesn't mean that they're talking about the same Jesus, the same spirit, the same gospel. Don't be deceived. I guess for others though, we we mustn't take this too far and and embark on a a sort of spiritual witch hunt trying to sniff out the slightest difference in doctrine from our position. There are lots of things that good and godly Christians aren't quite sure about or disagree on. I can think of, for example, baptism or um, the Sabbath day. And These are secondary issues, I believe, that we shouldn't fall out over, not gospel primary issues. And so we, we shouldn't make Uh, harsh or snap decisions about people saying you're a false teacher or whatever. Uh, This is Paul's fourth letter to the Corinthians. He knew them well over many years and this was a a, a well-researched and settled conclusion that he came to, not an instant one. So what should we do? That takes us to our final point. A deception is taking place so be careful who we listen to. In verses 5 to 12, Paul contrasts his ministry with the ministry of the super apostles in two key ways to help show us 
why we should stick with Jesus, or his Jesus, and his gospel over and against anything else. And I think he says, look for content over style. So look at verse five. Paul says, but I do not think that I am in the least inferior to these super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. These super apostles, they were trained speakers. They were brilliant at at crafting their message. They were great at rhetoric and keeping people on the edge of their seats. And we can think of many uh, people today who are very good at communication. I think perhaps the comedians on our TV screens are some of the best in the world. I think of someone like Michael McIntyre. He can keep a a packed room on the edge of the seats for hours. He's brilliant at communication, at observing life. And I'm not saying that it's wrong for preachers to work hard at how they engage people or to speak with, you know, with real um, care. It's a good thing. But look at Paul's priority when it comes to speaking. Not so much being trained, but verse five, he's not trained like super apostles, but he says, verse six, sorry, but I do have knowledge. We have made this knowledge perfectly clear to you in every way. Paul is far less concerned about the packaging of a sermon, whether it's got brilliant illustrations or clear structure, whatever it is. They're much more concerned about the, the content, what's being said about Jesus and the spirit and the gospel. And in his ministry, he has clearly, in every way, presented his knowledge about the true, authentic Jesus to these dear Corinthians. And wonderfully, he wrote that knowledge down for us. We have his letters for us to read. As we go through the scriptures, we have all the knowledge we need to know the true Jesus and the true spirit and the true gospel. We're not left in the dark. We have it here in front of us. What a joy to know that. So I wonder, how discerning are we when we hear someone preach? It's partly why we encourage people here at Forward to keep the Bibles open as we preach through a passage so that we can check if what is being said from the pulpit is actually what the passage says, because it might not be the case. And would you be able to spot, keep your Bibles open to check? It's why we encourage the church family after the the, the formal time is over to be talking to one another about what was said from the Bible, to to compare notes and check if it made sense and to check if it's right, and if it's not, to come come back to the preacher to let let us know. Um, It's why, in part, in our small groups in the next week, we'll look at the same passage from the Bible to, to pour over what was said for ourselves to grapple with the text, not just believing what someone said to us, but actually checking for ourselves what the Bible does say. We have all that we need to know Christ and the gospel in the Bible, but are we discerning? Are we willing to work hard to grapple with it for ourselves to see? Look for content over style, but also look for sacrificial love. Verse seven. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? The super apostles were charging for their speeches. It was common practice that that would happen in Paul's day. In fact, the, the better the speaker, the more you could charge. And it's almost like Paul was demeaning the, uh, the Corinthians, they thought, by not charging at all for his ministry. In fact, he probably had to work himself to fund his, to keep himself and also rely on other Christians to give gifts to support him. 
It was sacrificial. And notice why Paul does it, verse 11. Why, he says, why am I behaving this way? Why am I not charging for my ministry? Because I don't love you? God knows I do. Paul is willing to be a poor apostle because he loves the Corinthians. He, he will lower himself, verse seven, to elevate them with the gospel because he loves them that much. And of course, Paul is not the first example of this kind of sacrificial love. Back in chapter eight of two Corinthians, talking about the Lord Jesus, Paul says this in verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that through you, so that you through his poverty might be rich. You see, as Paul lowers himself down, verse seven, he elevates the Corinthians with the gospel. And Paul is saying, I'm doing nothing more than the Lord Jesus himself did. This is the, the pattern of true gospel ministry, that the servant lowers himself to lift others up. And it's clear that Paul is, is working this way because he knows Christ. He has encountered the true Christ. He knows that that's the shape of true gospel ministry, lowering yourself to raise others up. Of course, the, the super apostles, it was the opposite. They would put others down to raise themselves up. And Paul would say to them, look, do you know the true Christ at all? Are you in step with his true ministry at all? Your ministry's all wrong, it's topsy-turvy. But he could say to the Corinthians, you know how I lived amongst you, the shape of my ministry, it was sacrificial love. A sign that I do know the sacrificial love of Christ. I guess for us, it means that we should be careful who we listen to checking what they say in terms of content, but also I think checking their, their lifestyle, checking that they are people who love, sacrificially. It's true for the preachers here at Fullwood. I know it's hard in a church family for everyone to know everyone perfectly well. It's almost impossible, isn't it? But those who preach here should make their lives available and transparent to the church family so that you can check if we are these kinds of people. And come and get to know us. We, we'd love to get to know you, for sure. I wonder if it's part of the reason why it's dangerous to over-rely on listening to sermons from the internet where the preacher is 3,000 miles away and we have no access to their lifestyle. We can't tell if they are shaped by sacrificial love or not. Be careful who we listen to. Listen to the Apostle Paul for he has knowledge and sacrificial love. Listen to those who preach Paul and follow his footsteps. Just in a few moments, we will share bread and wine together. The best way to protect our marriages is to love our spouses. And the best way to protect our relationship with the Lord Jesus until our wedding day is to be head over heels with the Lord Jesus. And so as we come and share bread and wine this morning, can I invite you to come and feed your love for Jesus as we remember his death for us. He did not come into the world for the healthy but the sick. He didn't come for the righteous but the unrighteous. He came for moral failures, those who have messed up. He came for people whose love for him is often cold and often divided. He knew all of that, yet he came and did all that was necessary by dying on the cross to bring us forgiveness and secure our relationship forever. And as we remember that love, doesn't it make us want to love him more? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that a wedding is coming. There is a date in the diary when this broken and groaning world will be put right. And we thank you that for those who are in Christ, there will be a day of unthinkable joy and eternal happiness as we stand side by side with our glorious groom. Father, please help us to be a people who stay faithful to him until our wedding day. Help us to be wise to the deceptions of the evil one who works through people to confuse us about Jesus. Help us to be a people of your word who are bothered enough to pour over the scriptures to search out the meaning and understand who Jesus is, the, the true gospel. And Father, please help us to be a beacon of truth in this land, upholding the true gospel and the true savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.